song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's not often that I uh, dip my toe into the, uh, what's it freaking called? The Marvel Extended Comic Universe. I'm, I'm not a big comic book movie guy. For your sake and for the sake of the people, I did finally get around to watching uh, Black Panther for this show. So, so I am jazzed to talk. Yeah, and we are going to be talking mostly about the Black Panther movie, but I did want to give a bit of a history of Black Panther. Nothing crazy, nothing too in-depth, but uh, it's important. I think there's a couple things that are important to note about Black Panther. One is that he is, for the most part, the first black superhero. There were black characters previously in bit parts and in background scenes of comics for both what are the, are the two big ones now, DC and Marvel. But until 1966, there was not a black person in a comic, in a mainstream comic who is a superhero. And that first person was T'Challa, who is the king of Wakanda. And he is also known as Black Panther, who is the warrior king of Wakanda, an African nation that to the rest of the world is considered, and this is something they get to in the movie, a uh, third world nation, but it's this hyper advanced technological wonder. He appears in 1966 in two issues of Fantastic Four, 19, uh, 52 and 53, I believe. And then he appears uh, the next year in the Fantastic Four annual. And then in 1968, he appears in a Captain America story. But it isn't until 1960, May of 1968, that he joins the Avengers. And that's really when he becomes one of the stars of the Marvel Universe. It's at that point, this is still four years before like Luke Cage exists. Like He is really the only black superhero. So I, I wanted people to understand like that context, that this, be the movie in particular being the cultural event it was, was something that was, should have been expected considering the cultural legacy of Black Panther. People don't really understand just how infrequent Black superheroes are in the world of comics. They just don't, they hadn't really existed in for decades. You know what really struck me, Nick, is that like when we were growing up in the 90s, you had like Spawn and you had Blade. And so the two like Black comic book characters that I was most familiar with from like my, my childhood, they're like way out on the kind of grittier edge of the scale. But when I watched this movie, as you're saying, with the kind of Afrofuturism, I thought that Wakanda was just such like a beautifully imagined place because there's like the waterfall scenes and the ritual scenes where it's more rural and traditional. But then like when uh, when they're showing the towns, it's like Moss Eisley in Star Wars. This movie, the look of this movie, reminded me a lot of the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, but but no, I, I thought that it was really interesting to see like a very brightly lit. You said he originally came from Fantastic Four, so that's very interesting to me. Also, like almost like a Fantastic Four type kind of bright and positive world compared to kind of the the grittier black comic book characters that I was familiar with from the 90s. When we think about like the 90s style of superheroes, we we don't 
have the perspective of history to understand the ebbs and flows of the way that black people are portrayed in the larger culture. Uh, We talked last week about the unfortunate history of the WWE in terms of black representation. And to be honest, it's not that long of a list of positively portrayed superhero kind of characters that were portrayed by black people in wrestling. Uh, The number one one that came to my mind was uh, Bobo Brazil in terms of just like an all-time legend in the business. Like, er, uh, Big Cat Ernie Ladd was another legend, uh, but he was a heel. Ernie Ladd was was certainly, until much later in his career when he was kind of an older guy and a fan favorite by association, he was definitely a a hard edge, uh, you know, made made no... uh, made no bones about certainly portraying himself as a, as a hostile, uh, large black man. It's not to say that like Boba Brazil was a happy warrior kind of uh, that kind of trope, but like it is an, an aspirational character that you don't really see in, let's say mainstream eighties wrestling, like we talked about, but you do see it, uh, with guys like Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson to a certain extent, but who you really see it with is the, junkyard dog who is one of the biggest stars of the 80s and i think we have a tendency to couple him with hulk hogan uh because of the cartoon and stuff like that but i feel like uh, and you would know better than i would junkyard dog was like a really seminal figure in wrestling white or black but for the black community is one of the first stars to really be the the big time star of a promotion. It's interesting that you said we often kind of think of him in the same breath of Hulk Hogan and think of him as part of the kind of cartoon Hulkamania crew like we were talking about with Darren the other week. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that like before he became part of the cartoon Hulkamania crew, like Dog was Hulk Hogan himself. That the Dog was a very, very similar character and that, you know, he wasn't uh, a super proficient wrestler, but he was a very fired up promo who got people on his side and, you know, set up a, a really, really big comeback. He was very, very similar to Hogan himself. And I mean, he was the most important star in Mid-South. I mean, after he went to New York all the way until Watts sells to Crockett in 87, Watts's quest is constantly to, to replace uh, junkyard dog that's kind of, that kind of becomes his holy grail and the thing that he's never really able to truly do and i think him dying so early relatively speaking also really changed his legacy because a lot of the wrestlers from that generation are fondly remembered now even if they weren't the best in-ring performers because of the nostalgia for that larger than life time in wrestling and i feel like if he were still alive he'd be all in appearing in a lot of legend stuff i feel like he would be one of be treated like one of the pioneers of wrestling that he was and not just as a a guy who came to the wwe like not just their I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Uh, not just a, per, a person who was over in other places and came to the WWF and didn't embarrass himself. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that what happened to JYD when he came to the WWF was kind of like a microcosm of what was happening to the whole territorial system that had given birth to him, that he was kind of aging out and he didn't really look the same anymore and maybe you know, all the, the guys who aren't really athletic there and but survive in spite of their lack of athleticism, they officially, they officially hit that wall where they lose the step and they, they can't anymore. And I think that 
like the version of JYD that most of us think of is like the candle that's more than half melted. You know what I mean? And I think for better or worse, because of the exposure he got in the WWE, and then unfortunately the exposure he got in uh, early 90s against Flair, famously, I, I think we tend to remember the worst of him. Also, getting all the way back to a topic of many episodes ago, someone who was never a favorite of Dave Meltzer, someone who Dave Meltzer always went out of his way to kind of you know, stick the knife in about. And so our, our memory of him, I think is somewhat diminished, but I mean, he's, he's one of the great stars of the, the, you know, late seventies and early eighties. And like one of the like last great baby faces before Hulk Hogan. So yeah, he's a really historically significant figure. And I guess his legacy is carried on. I don't know if it's not Ron Simmons, right? Ron Simmons is a good worker, but like, why is he beating, Vader without really much lead time. A self-conscious attempt to recreate the overness of the Junkyard Dog by Bill Watts, the booker who had created the Junkyard Dog. It feels like it's a suit that's tailored for somebody else, and that makes sense, is that he literally just wanted to recapture the glory, like you said. And I, I think that's what ends up happening is that, and this is something that definitely happens with Black Panther, is... There was this idea for a very long time, or something that led to Black Panther and and what it is what Black Panther success means going forward is that for a really long time after JYD and after Ron Simmons, who did not do well because there was no lead up, there was this idea that well people don't want to see a black champion, and it's just not true. People just want to see the best guy be the best guy or girl be champion for the most part the most charismatic the most talented they don't i don't want to say that like oh wrestling fans are colorblind but like anybody can get over if they're good enough and i think that's one of the things that like the powers that be the the people on top of these organizations were unwilling to and and to be fair it's mostly vince mcmahon more so than the wcw because you look at booker t's success but there's this idea that like you can't be the lead of a national promotion if you're not you don't have a certain look and by definition that look precludes people of color in general it seems because and this is something we mentioned last week wwe still does not have a black champion like the rock is of mixed race his father was rocky johnson but like they have never had a person who identifies in the way that booker t identifies as black as the wwe champion as what they constantly tell you is the standard by which all other championships are judged in the industry it feels weird that there hasn't been a champion as a fan i think it's for me one of the more like the things i think about not that Big E should be champion tomorrow because they never had a black WWE champion. But like the idea that no one was worthy of that, like I watched a lot of wrestling. There were performers who were black who Ron Simmons should have, it feels like should have had a run as for Rook, which is one of the more interesting characters in the WWF, especially during the early attitude era. I think someone who the nation of domination, as we talked about with Darren the other week, it, it gets kind of rolled into the kind of gang war slash race war type stuff, but really on its own before Disciples of Apocalypse showed up, so to speak, and, and after as well. It, it definitely was a, a, a very good act altogether. And I think what with Farouk as definitely a, a singular talent atop it. I think what's scary to me is that when I think back over my life and watching the WWE, I think the person who, when I was a kid, who felt the closest, like they were getting that push, was Ahmed Johnson, <laughs> which is how 
who Darren talked about last week, but if you look back in terms of getting an earnest push and someone who looked like they were on title track and someone who was a, a black athlete who was treated in the way that the white face of the company made inventors are, at least very briefly, you know what I mean? Like it, it kind of was Ahmed or maybe today there's a little bit of it. You can see that in like Bobby Lashley, like he's doing kind of a mid-card gimmick right now, I think, no offense to anybody involved in that act. Uh, but like he, he's someone who you could easily see in that position, but it always blew my mind that, yeah, the closest it seemed like they got was Ahmed. And it's like, so wait, so you finally decided that, that you were going to do this and you like, like you said, you had Ron Simmons right there. You finally decided you were going to take someone seriously like this and you didn't take talent into account. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that's part of that almost, uh, that gets to the, the, the base of what I'm saying, which is that like Vince McMahon's problem is that he's an idiot when it comes to this shit. Not like he only thinks certain people can get over, but I don't think he like Ahmed Johnson, he thought could get over because he had a good look and no talent. And it's like that. And then he probably went, Oh, okay. That didn't work. And it's like, that doesn't mean that other black people, like black people are individuals. <laughs> like there it's Ahmed Johnson is this weird case where it's like, you really wonder, and this is something we talked about way back in the juice, make sugar days. What would have happened if Ahmed Johnson had NXT? And I, I feel like you see with NXT, uh, the development of different, acts that get over because they've had time to develop in the ecosystem of the WWE. And you see a much more, and, and that's one of the reasons you see a much more diverse cast of performers. And, and I think that's why you see the new day come through is because they had time, not Kofi, but big E and Xavier Woods both had time to develop their in-ring acumen before they were thrust into the spotlight. Yeah, I definitely think that you're right to kind of point at the difference in the time that uh, Ahmed came up versus like the time Big E came up, let's say, because I mean, I think of all the members of New Day, he's just visually the most like Ahmed, right? Because he's the big Jack guy. And when we were uh, doing our essential viewing last week, I was talking about that, that, uh, that developmental match where I was saying that, you know, the Big E was like dusty in there, that he was just standing in the middle of the ring and guys were running at him and bumping and he was cleaning house and looking like a million dollars. And I think that's a perfect example of what you're talking about, that, that Ahmed never had that experience. If he had had that, maybe he could have kind of gotten there. It, it, it's interesting how that plays out in the movie, though, in uh, Black Panther to bring it back. You, you have the main character who's raised in Wakanda his whole life, kind of preparing to be the leader because his father's the leader. And then you have the Michael B. Jordan character who grows up in the United States in, in Oakland in the 90s, as is portrayed in the prologue that's kind of scattered throughout the movie. So it's interesting to see we have, uh, we have you know, we have T'Challa, uh, raised in Wakanda, which is almost like the NXT environment uh, compared to, you know, Ahmed slash the Michael B. Jordan character who's who's thrown into the big bad world and has to learn to sink or swim. Yeah, and I think that their reactions to that speak to, like, how why it's so much hard, like, why it was so much harder for Ahmed Johnson to become successful in a way it wasn't for the New Day. They, they were just thrown in. Ahmed Johnson was just thrown in the deep end. You can really tell, and there are moments where he tra he gets to the points where he needs to in promos and in, in matches, let's say, more like fighting segments. But I, I feel like that uh, ability to find your identity as a performer, the core of who you are, is what 
you see happening for Xavier Woods in particular, uh, more so than Big E, at least in the sense of their transition to the main roster. Like I think Big E was roughed up a little bit on his entry into the main roster. And I think that Xavier Woods had some, also had some liftoff trouble, but I feel like with Xavier. Wait, 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 wait. You don't think that him coming out with, Wait, was it our, was it our truth? Truth yeah. wasn't it? But didn't he come out to Brodus Clay's music yes. at one point too? Didn't he have somebody else's music? Yeah, yeah. not not a good look. Um, <laughs> not, not 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 a star push. And also Ernest the Cat Miller's music too. It's both of their music. Yeah. Can somebody call my mama? It's about to get funky up in here. Greetings, explainer maniacs. It is I, Sir Reginald Undercarriage III, the seventh Earl of Bunbury. For generations, my family has preserved the culture and wisdom of our forebears as patrons of the arts. The halls of Bunbury Place are simply littered with masterpieces, from the Renaissance down to the time of Picasso. Into the 21st century, I am proud to keep the old traditions alive through my patronage of How Wrestling Explains the World. Through a negligible monthly donation at patreon.com slash h-w-e-t-w, I am able to support our highest modern art, the Wrestling Podcast, and provide the brilliant young thinkers of today with money for hosting, soundproofing foam, software licenses, and the like. If you're a true patron of the arts like me, and interested in more great How Wrestling Explains content, there's simply no more direct route than to call your investment banker and instruct him to make a secure transfer of funds to patreon.com slash h-w-e-t-w. He like other than the, but that wasn't a thing where he came in with uh, like a greatly heralded heralded star and a former champion in the previous promotion, which is supposed to be your like he won the national championship in college and he was the Heisman winner or whatever, and he's now coming in. You're like Xavier Woods was supposed to be a mid card performer who may eventually work his way to the upper mid card, which maybe you can argue where he is now, but I feel like they were allowed to exist in the, the cooperative space of NXT for me. Like that's a big aspect of what's called the Afro futurism. Afro futurism, at least for our purposes is a, a view of blackness that, as an identity that exists outside of the white gaze, which is basically what we're talking about when we talk about Vince McMahon. That, like, the when I say capitalist, that's kind of also what I mean. That this idea that, like, black people have to work and act a certain way because we've created narratives that that's the way black people are. And what Afrofuturism says is, like, no, give like, this is what would happen if we existed outside of these constraints on our development as people, as nations, as communities, as the African diaspora. And I feel like that's something that they have been able to, what you're seeing with the New Day is essentially existing outside of, and to be fair to Vince McMahon, that like capitalist gaze. Like he, they had the confidence growing up, for lack of a better term, in NXT and being successful there under the guidance of a different regime, they come out, they deal with some trouble getting through, like in terms of entry into the, the main roster, but they persevere because they are able to 
develop an identity outside of what Vince McMahon wanted and propel themselves forward. And that's what you're kind of talking about when you talk about like when you see Wakanda as this beautiful city, even though they treat them, they are treated as though they are a third world country because that is their outward. They have like a kayfabe about themselves that they don't exist, basically. And I feel like that's something else you get to see is like the New Day is like a, like a, I don't want to put this on them, but they are an example of the underlying ideals of Afrofuturism, which is this idea of blackness as an identity existing outside of the capitalist tools and systems that we have created. Ever since I really came back to wrestling, at least, which would be like 2007-ish, Ever since then, uh, so better than a decade now, the refrain has kind of been, well, it is the way it, it is, and it's going to be that way until Vince McMahon is dead or out of the picture for business reasons, and let's face it, he'll never be out of the picture for business reasons until he's dead. Like, that's kind of been the refrain over the last decade. The New Day feel like characters who refuse to stipulate to that cardinal rule that, like, hangs over the whole WWF. Like, that's what makes them feel really authentic and as you say it's like it's not just that they're like free from his gaze it's like they don't care about it or at least they portray that they don't care about it even though you know their their employment to some degree hinges on but but i think why they've been so successful is that like i said for the last 10 plus years everybody's like well the state of wwe is going to be what it is going to be as long as vince is there and they're the ones who are like "Uh uh-uh no way we refuse to play by that rule we're going to have fun our way we're going to do our thing and we're not going to let the way that he likes to rake the sand in the sandbox stand in the way. And that's a really, they just, just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, Xavier Woods explicitly, I mean, this could be a, a work, but he said, I told Vince to fire me if the new day heel turn didn't work. If you didn't allow us to be ourselves, we were, it's not worth us being on the show because like, if I can't get us over as bad guys, when I know exactly what I want to do with that, then my vision for what I'm going to be as a wrestler isn't accurate. And and I think that, like I said, it's a confidence that would did not happen for a guy like Ahmed. Ahmed came in, he was thrown to the sharks, like the attitude era, they were sharks. And I think that's like the defining difference is there's no incubation system for personalities for talents for stars to become bigger stars like an alistair black kind of guy um and i feel like that is the defining thing like that is the defining legacy and we talked about legacy last week of the new day is that they were able to say like no this business needs to change and we think it needs to change for these reasons and we want to do these things and we respect your input, but understand that like we can build outside of like up, up, down, down, obviously it's been supported in one way or another by the WWE for a long time. But like, that is a thing that he built in large part through his own hard work and he grabbed the brass ring. And I think that's what Vince wants, but it is, it is framed as, like you said, like it seems like Stone Cold was also willing to be like, no, I want this. There, There's this legacy of performers who are like, I need to be separated from you as the definer of my character. I need to take ownership of this character and use it to propel myself forward. And if you don't like that, then we can't work together. And I think that was really like what the New Day did is like we have other avenues we can be successful. We don't need 
to be professional wrestlers in the WWE? Is that our dream? Is that our goal? Of course. But like, we don't need you to be successful. Like that to me is the most interesting part about, and I think that that's what you see with, uh, not to like, I don't want to belabor the point, but that's what you see with Wakanda is they're like, we do not need to exist in the larger world. We are incredibly successful and self-sufficient by ourselves. We can do fine without you and they are kind of forced to compromise certain things but in a way that plays to their like their framing and the way they want things to work and it was it's really incredible to see over the last four years the way that they've taken that the 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 run that they had and turned it into like a not a paradigm shift but a real change in the way that talent has control over their characters yeah, I guess I think that's really, I mean, it's it's tough to, I, I don't even want to use this word because I hate talking about the legacy of active performers still, but I think that if they, if they have a legacy that exists today, you know what I mean? Like uh, if someone was playing with a hand grenade backstage, God forbid, and it blew all three of them up, what would the legacy be? You know what I mean? Uh, uh, boy, that's grisly. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that if, if they're, if their legacy is anything, it's that is the, yeah, kind of combining what both of us were just saying is that they feel like they broke out in a way that was authentic and uniquely them in a way that not only other people have been unable to do in a way that other people have been claiming is not possible. When you talk to, when you hear guys like, I don't know, maybe certain big guys and stuff or various other malcontents after they leave the company, they, as all three of them individually, but especially collectively as a unit, have have done stuff that other people claim is impossible. And I think that that's the magic of Black Panther on a lot of levels. Like the very existence of the movie is like something that when, you know, when X-Men or whatever was in theaters, like how many, how many people both within the comic community and within the general the greater cinematic community would say, you know, in a decade, there's going to be a, a superhero movie with a 90% black cast that's about a uniquely African superhero. And it's going to be one of the biggest cultural deals, you know, it, of the decade. And like, I, I don't think very many people would have bet on that when the comic book movie craze started 10, 15 years ago. You know, I think that that's part of the magic of the movie in a way that the New Day has done as well. I think that on a lot of different levels, Black Panther achieved stuff that maybe people thought wasn't achievable or maybe were like, yeah, one day, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the new day is that one day. And I think Black Panther is that one day. I think we've exhausted uh, my social science degree uh, for all it's worth. Cause I wanted to talk about a much more uh, like wrestling centric aspect, the less meta conversation about uh, Black Panther. Now that we've spent, you know, a half an hour talking in a meta way about Black Panther, the battle for the throne, both of them, I should say, the two battles for the throne against M'Baku and against Killmonger, to me, are the most wrestling shit I have ever seen. Like, I have a rankings, and we're going to go, we're going back through the history of the show. I feel like I'm going to be able to create a video of a ranking system of, like, the most wrestling shit I've ever seen. Everything about both of these matches, and that's what they are, especially the first one are wrestling just a hundred percent like right like having never watched another mcu movie and not being particularly familiar with the mythology of it like how 
of Black Panther. Like you're familiar, but it's not like a, you didn't read the comic separately. Did that feel just like viscerally wrestling to you? Yeah, especially the first one when he's first, you know, it kind of first looks like he's he's just going to become the king. And then the guy steps forward and he's like, wait, is not there supposed to be a challenge? I'm here to do the challenge and stuff. Like that one is very pro wrestling. Like number one in that the fight itself is almost performative. Like they are about to crown him and the other guy steps up and is like, hey, wait, we got to do the fight part first. <laughs> like it, it seems like it's a foregone conclusion that this is Chala's throne. So it's it's kind of pro wrestling in that way. But yeah, I mean, you know, the the guy gets a little heat. He stabs him with the spear, right? Is that, oh, that's in the no, no, one. both have uh, a spear stab. Both he has the spear in the kind of shoulder yes. slash chest. Yeah, 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 in the first one. Uh, yeah, so he, he gets a little heat on T'Challa, and then they start grappling on the ground, and it's like they're going towards the end of the waterfall, which is, you know, the gun hanging on the wall that we come back to in the second fight and stuff. But no, that one was very pro wrestling, where the guy gets just enough heat, and then Chala hits his big comeback, and he wins clean in the middle with his uh, armbar shoulder triangle <laughs> hold uh, right on the edge of the precipice, which is super visual. But yeah, it's just like the the champion goes over strong. You know, it was TV match, total TV match. And the, what's great is the uh, the Dora Milaje are um, encircling them, so they literally have like a ring around them during the first match, and the stage that waterfall is such a beautiful stage for the fights that they have. Like it really resonates with a sense of place and of setting. Like there's a real, it's the way in which like the uh, Lucha underground, it reminds me of where it's like that ring and that arena have like a personality in and of themselves. And, and that scene in particular is such a beautiful visual representation of the entire like aesthetic of the movie. And it's also just a great encapsulation of, of a wrestling match vis-a-vis a superhero fight. Like it is this, uh, it's right on the precipice of both, it, pardon the pun, but it's, it's this overly dramatic wrestling match. Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther, also directed Creed. Uh, so I think that's more of like a boxing feel to it, but there's the framing and the way it's shot is very, um, it is very wrestling esque. Like you see, it's all visual. It's all like playing to the back row of the crowd kind of stuff. And I think that's especially true in the second fight between Killmonger, who is Michael B. Jordan and, and T'Challa, who is Chadwick Boseman, if we didn't mention earlier. And that fight is much shorter, if I remember correctly, and much, much, much more brutal. That feels less like a wrestling match than like a traditional wrestling match, I should say, than like the Triple H Mick Foley Royal Rumble 2000 street fight where it's like a fight that's happening in a ring. Did you feel the same way? Did it remind you? It's a much greedy, not grittier, but it's a much more like visceral fight, at least to me. The moment from our archives that that fight reminded me of is actually like the Vader Anoki thing. It's not as one-sided, but I think that it it has much the same impact both to the characters who are watching the fight. Because like you said, in the first fight, there's they're all circled around and it's very ceremonial. But like in this second fight, it's more pro wrestling. Like there's gasps on the heat spots and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's there, there is this really kind of charged kind of wrestling atmosphere in that second fight. And I think the distinction is like the first one is almost sports entertainment. And I think this one is like strong style and, and you really see Killmonger's 
presence, and Michael B. Jordan by extension, obviously. His presence, like Michael B. Jordan looks like he is chiseled out of fucking stone. That dude is massive. And he like looks not necessarily compared to T'Challa, but like in general, his presence is so much bigger than M'Baku, who's not a small guy and not a like a, a withering lily in terms of an actor. He has a real presence, but like there's a reason Michael B. Jordan is like one of the great like A-list movie stars of his generation. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a level of charisma. And I think you see that um, in the battle for the throne, um, the promo before the fight between T'Challa and... Teta. Speak. I'm standing in your house, serving justice to a man who stole your vibranium and murdered your people. Justice your king couldn't deliver. I don't care that you brought Claw. Only reason I don't kill you where you stand is because I know who you are. Now what do you want? I want the throne. <laughs> hey, you, the tuna. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. Your weapons. Our weapons will not be used to wage war on the world. It is not our way to be judge, jury, and executioner for people who are not our own. Not your own. But didn't life start right here on this continent? So ain't all people your people? I am not king of all people. I am king of Wakanda. And it is my responsibility to make sure our people are safe and that vibranium does not fall into the hands of a person like you. Son, we have entertained the charlatan for too long. Reject his request. Oh, I ain't requesting nothing. Ask who I am. You're Eric Stevens, an American black operative, a mercenary nicknamed Killmonger. That's who you are. That's not my name, princess. Ask me, King. No. Ask me. Take him away. Ungubani! Indingu Indadaka! Unyanaka Ndobu! Huh? Unyanaka Ndobu? I found my daddy with panther claws in his chest! You ain't the son of a king, you are a son of a murderer! We have Osisa! Lies! I'm afraid not, Queen Mother. Huh? What? You? Indanda Togan Ndobu. Hey, Auntie. I'm exercising my blood right. The challenge for the mantles of King and Black Panther. Do not do this, T'Challa. As the son of Prince Injobu, he is within his rights. He has no rights here. The challenge will take weeks to prepare. Weeks? I don't need weeks. The whole country ain't gotta be there. I just need him and somebody to get me out of these chains. T'Challa, what do you know of this? I accept your challenge. Uh, and, and you listen in that, and I mean, it's funny. Like, he says, hi, auntie. But he also establishes very quickly, like, what the stakes are, why he's there. 
it's a really great promo for a match that you're they want you to want to see. I think that he he is a great heel character. If anything, I wanted him in the movie a little sooner, deeper. We have the the claw character, and that reminds me of the like Final Fantasy series, the villain swap, where for like the first third of the game, you think a certain person is the main villain, and then a third of the way in, swerve, they're actually just a henchman of the larger villain. I thought that they could have gotten to Michael B. Jordan faster because I thought that he was one of the best parts of the movie. Like you said, just the way he delivers those lines, both the scene immediately before the fight that you're talking about and the scene immediately after the fight, he kind of lays out his view of the world and he's got the great kind of heel thing where like, it's he's kind of right at least in a certain lens like his worldview has an almost undeniable validity to it but at the same time it's not very nice which is like the problem sort so to speak you know what i mean but i think that he is a great heel character like that scene after the fight where he is crowned and everybody's just circled around the throne and he like walks down the middle of the shot with this like long black jedi robe and just kind of like climbs up on the throne all casual and stuff like he's got this great kind of heelish look like i think the design of the movie too like the way he looks with the uh self-imposed scars all over his body and stuff when he takes his shirt off for the fight it's like there's visual indicators that this guy is a really serious motherfucker like it's one thing to say like oh yeah he's like a navy seal guy you know special ops like the bad guy in every movie or whatever but it's like no when he takes off his shirt and he's got all the scars on his body and stuff and when he's wearing the the black jedi robe and stuff there's just so many good visual indicators but it it, it creates a lot of i think tension or intentional dissonance for the viewer because like i said it's like he's transparently this great bad guy but like he's also like i said like his worldview is is not an illogical read of of the world and i think that that's what makes the third act what really sets up that 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 final portion of the movie to be so interesting yeah and i, I think that's like one of the things that you can really point to and be like wrestling should do that better you should learn from black panther how to build a heel. And I feel like that is something, that character, that idea of this, the, the difference between, and I, we talked about this before. What did you say? You said- Oh, I said that like the difference. So it's like, a, you know, if someone's just a, a looks really badass and wears black and says all the right things and, you know, kicks some ass for the first three quarters of the movie, like that's a good villain. That's a memorable villain. But for somebody to be a really great heel, like I was saying, they have to have that other psychological level where- in his own mind, he is completely right, and his way is the way. And maybe if you're watching that movie in kind of a bad mood, his way is the way too. You know what? He has that real psychological resonance that makes him a great heel, not just like a fun villain for a two-hour movie. Yeah, and he is right on the first half. His argument is what your dad was doing, how your dad ruled this country was fucked up. You have to address that legacy and move forward from it. We should be helping out people in general, the the whether or not you agree whether or not they should just be helping black people or if, or the whether or not they should just be helping the African diaspora or if they should be helping people out in general, like those are things that even T'Challa believes, like ultimately agrees with. It's that he then is like, we should sell all of our vibranium to weapons manufacturers who then give it to people that we like so that they can take over the world. Like that is where you're like, ooh, Killmonger, maybe. 
maybe take it down a notch. And I think that's one of the things that's like really great in like a Ric Flair sense of like the reason Ric Flair is a heel isn't because he's a bad person. It's that he's willing to do anything that he needs to do to win and keep and get what he wants. Like that's what makes him a bad guy and what he wants to, what he thinks that means ultimately also starts to like, decay him from the inside like we talked about this beforehand um something else we talked about beforehand uh killmonger you said you knew immediately when he attacked the woman with the heart the panther heart that he was gonna die at the end of the movie like he crosses a line that i think like reminds me of when rick flair slapped ricky morton while talking about girls in training bras where you're like oh you're just a bad guy now like you're just a monster at this moment and like whether or not you can change from that is a different story but like right now you are a bad guy and i feel like wrestling needs to look at a character and this is a much more modern example and a much easier example to digest like look at killmonger and make your heels more like killmonger and i actually think they're doing it with daniel bryan like daniel bryan is a killmonger-esque villain he's an incredibly talented like destructive force that can beat anybody he wants really but he also has goons to make sure that he does beat everybody and his vision of what his role is and what it should be is warped in the sense that it doesn't take into account the effects that that has like in the long term, like obviously I agree with Daniel Bryan and almost all of the shit he says, but like I think he his he's playing like the vegan that makes you hate veganism, but for the planet. And I think that's kind of like what Killmonger's role is a little bit. And I think they are kind of learning from it, but I feel like more characters like Killmonger and less characters like um Mr. Freeze. You know what I'm saying? Are you saying Arnold Schwarzenegger did not deliver a tour de force performance? Uh, yes, it's exactly what I'm saying, Dave. Oh. Uh, well, oh, I meant on the episode of SmackDown that he appeared. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Not not in uh, Batman Forever. Batman and Robin. Or Batman yeah. and Robin. Batman and Robin, right. No, I definitely hear what you're saying with the Daniel Bryan comparison. And I think that an important part of the psychology of both characters is that they believe that what has been done to them justifies the same being returned like that's what daniel bryan is there for he's saying your time is up it's an it's not that he's the new world order but he's basically saying like your time is up and we are going to replace you and all the ways that you used to step on other people and step on the planet well now we're going to step on you and that's really the michael b jordan characters thing too it's like especially i love that he comes from oakland in the late 80s early 90s like it really reminds like his whole theory of how they're they're going to use these weapons to change the world i mean it's tupac it's like give them guns step back and watch them kill each other you know what i mean like that is what i that's part of his scheme that i think is like really hits in that movie and i think it's something resonant with brian too where like this is all acceptable because it's what was done to us or it's what the bad guys did because they thought they'd never be caught because they thought the day of reckoning was never coming and God damn it, it's today, and they're never going to know what hit them. I think there is a very shared psychological note there. It's to the point where I almost have to assume that Daniel Bryan is referencing characters, if not necessarily Killmonger specifically, though I'm sure he watched the movie. The, I, the Killmonger-esque characters that, like, he is a not just for a wrestler but for a person like he seems like an incredibly well read and knowledgeable person about what he's talking about 
having outside the context of wrestling, like heard interviews with him. So I, I think he's operating on the kind of level that Killmonger is again. And this is something we just talked about with the new day. It's something where they're allowed to, once you have success now, I feel like Vince micromanages you less. And that's when you can create actual, like good art. And I, I think that's what this was. And we, we, I often make the distinction between like movies and films, right? Like I think movies are like, fun things but they don't have this artistic expectation i feel like this one is a this uh that black panther is a really a good film and a great movie and i think the reason it works as a film as like a, a piece of cinematic art that you're supposed to pour into and like get ideas out of is because they are allowed to have a, more than a duality of ideas they are allowed to construct a full world that these morals play out in and i feel like you do have that and this is something we've talked about a bunch with the mr mcmahon character mr mcmahon represents exactly what daniel bryan is talking about when he talks about baby boomers who eat up their employees and their and everybody in their wake and do nothing to give back for it. Like that's who he's talking. The greed is good generation is embodied by people like Vince McMahon. So like, I feel like that the the connection between the two is so strong because they're speaking in the same way to different issues. So when you first started watching the movie, you said, I, I believe you texted, this might be your exact words. Fuck you for making me watch a movie with unobtainium. So I have to ask, did this movie make you feel like Vibranium wasn't just unobtainium. Did it make you feel like the hardcore championship had value? Is is kind of the question I have for you. Well, I guess my answer to this question is a little complex. I guess it's something that I actually almost brought up a few minutes ago when you were talking about something else, so I'll say it here. There's a lot of magic in this movie, whereas in most comic book movies, it's more science fiction tech. And then occasionally people's power of heart shines through and that, you know, brings someone back to life in a key moment or whatever. But like this movie felt magical. Like there's the scene where uh, the white guy, uh, the Hobbit, uh, what's that actor's name? Uh, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. Thank you. There's that scene where Martin Freeman, it looks like he's going to die and they pull out the little unobtainium ball and they like shove it in the bullet hole in his neck and it saves his life. It's like, I know that it's metal, but that almost felt like I said, there's there's a real magical aspect of the vibranium, which I thought made it a little different from unobtainium. But I just thought, I don't know, I that there's a magical metal that the best weapons can be made from that that only they have. It it just see that that also saves a main character or a side character's life in a key moment. It's like, it, it just seems like kind of a plot device to me. And in a way that, like I said, ten, I did literally text that to you about five minutes into this movie. I was like, oh my God, there's magic metal that only they have in this mythical country in this movie. It's it's Avatar. So it wasn't Avatar, but I one of the things I liked about the movie compared to other Marvel movies, but one of the things I found jarring too, like I said, was that it's definitely a much more magical world. Like even that, even though that stuff is tech, it's not like it feels more magical than tech. And I guess that has something to do with maybe the cultural effect that they're trying to create. Um, but so, yeah, by the end of the movie, I did definitely see the difference. But at the same time, it seemed like a, a pretty convenient plot device that there's this awesomely powerful metal that only they have that could potentially end the world, et cetera, et cetera. 
Does it remind you in any way, and I get this is why I was hoping you would say basically that. Does it remind you in any way of like the the boot, the like loaded boot or the loaded elbow? Like, please correct me if I'm wrong when I say this. Why do you like those and not necessarily love like those are not real things that they just made up so that like it's a plot device, right? Like, do you feel that the story is so simple in wrestling that a plot device like that is like almost like a, a uh, like it elevates the material or do you just like it? Cause it's goofy fun. Like I, I, in other words, like, cause I'm pretty sure you like loaded boots and stuff like that. Right. I do. I do. I love loaded boots. I love brass nuts in your trunk. I love pulling your fist out of your trunks and pretending you have brass nuts, even when it's an empty fist. Yeah, I, uh, I love all that stuff. But I, I guess to me that those are character-driven actions, and the goal of those actions is to reveal things about the character. And when the moment comes for the heel to cheat, it really doesn't matter how they cheat, as long as it's worse than the way you've seen anybody else cheat recently and that it pisses you off. And so however a character can achieve that in their own way is cool. And so like if you're Len Denton or whoever, you got the loaded boot. If you're uh, Ted DiBiase, you got the loaded glove. Whatever your heat getting thing is, I think that's cool. But that's like character based. Whereas like the unobtainium, it's plot based. It's like a, it's a plot note. It's, it's just a MacGuffin, like to use, to use a term that we've used here before. Just the unobtainium is a MacGuffin, but it's also used within the context of the movie to explain why characters can do things like, like why his suit is so important and why the invisible car that they're driving in at one point is bulletproof and stuff. Like they use obtainium to fill all these gaps in the plot uh, in a way that, I don't know, it, it, like I said, it's in service to the plot, whereas like the loaded boot or the, the empty fist in your, in your tights, like that's to service character. So I, I think it's a matter of intent more so than of form. Now that we've solved what makes uh, a loaded boot better than vibranium in a fight, um, I had this question I've been thinking about the entire time, which is um, it's very simple. Should more matches take place at the top of waterfalls? That's one. And uh, two, who would win the wrestling version of that? And the like, I guess it's Wade Keller, like shoot, who would win the shoot wrestling championship? Like who would win a waterfall based version of that? And more importantly, should we have more matches on top of waterfalls, uh, especially if they're as scenic as the one that they film by Panther on? Uh, yeah, I am all for uh, waterfall fights, right? I mean, what my problem though is I don't trust wrestling. You say waterfall fight and the first one's a waterfall fight. And then like two years later, Kevin Nash is doing a cannonball into the pool under the waterfall. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I'm all for waterfalls. I did love those scenes and like, especially the first one, like you said, it was hard not to see uh, wrestling in it. Well, in, in the first one, it was more of the moves they were doing were more wrestling. And in the second one, it was like the crowd work was yeah. more wrestling. But uh but, but, but yeah, I, I thought that those were stupendous. And I'm trying to think, has there ever been a, uh, I guess it would have to be Shark Boy, right? I mean, I'm thinking of what aquatic characters we have out there in the, in the wrestling world who would have an advantage. I don't know. So, so I guess I'm going with Shark Boy because he's from the deep blue sea. He's in his natural habitat in water. He, uh, he drinks a lot of clam juice, so he's, he's very strong and uh, vigorous. Oh uh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm, go I'm, going, I'm going with Shark Boy. Shark Boy is our waterfall. He is the champion of chasing waterfalls. I am. 
I definitely, uh, obviously, my answer to the first part is oh, fucking of course. They should have all matches by waterfalls, especially if they have, the, it's like the Hammerstein Ballroom, basically, but with waterfalls. It's fucking amazing. Those are two of the most, like, the best. They are Thor, Ragnarok level, vis- and, and Guardians of the Galaxy 2 level, like, great visuals in the in the marvel cinematic universe like i really love them and i think in terms of framing of matt like a show i would be interested in seeing if somebody like aew uh did different locations for matches like we loved our first how blank explains wrestling episode was about the ultimate deletion like we i personally love that style stuff so like i would love to see that um dave shark boy would he beat the shark? Is that is that what John Tenta's name was from? Oh my gosh! Wow, that's a fucking main event, dude. That's a main event. We just need a reanimation machine uh, and about a million dollars, and I think we can make at least one point one million dollars. <laughs> you mean point one million dollars, right? There's no way we're doubling our money on. Oh, we just save the gross, and the numbers sound bigger. God. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Hi everyone, it's me, Dave, with an important lesson from the How Wrestling Explains mailbag. Recently, Miss Fezziwig's second grade class in Missoula, Montana, reached out to us with a beautiful letter describing how they'd made our show part of their weekly curriculum. While we don't have time to answer all the great questions the students sent in, I did want to focus on one question that seemed to get to the heart of what this show is all about. Christina asked us, How can kids like us be sure we have bright, successful futures ahead of us, like Nick and Dave? Well, let me tell you something, Mean Steen. If you want to grow up big and strong and brilliant like the hosts of How Wrestling Explains, you gotta follow the three demandments of Explainamania, sister. You gotta follow us on Twitter, you gotta subscribe to us on YouTube, and you gotta give us five stars on iTunes, Jack! Or Jill. When the demandments have been fulfilled, Mean Steen, then you will truly see where the power lies and connect yourself to the ancient wisdom of the success of Explainomania. You'll be plugged into the newest content and the latest news from the most brilliant minds in podcasting, baby. And through your five star review, you'll become one of the very planks in the raft that keeps them Explainomania afloat. Mean Steen, you and the other second graders in Miss Fezziwig's class are the future sister. But until your time comes, you gotta follow the three demandments to get your mind, body, and soul ready for the Great Reckoning, dude. So what you gonna do, Donald Trump's America, when the power of Explainomania, the Twitter, the YouTube, the iTunes ratings, the Miss Fezziwig second what grade class runs wild on you? The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. So yeah, uh, did you have anything that you wanted to plug? Well, of course, people should uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, We are HWETWPod on Twitter, and we are How Wrestling Explains the World on YouTube. Uh, So people should definitely follow those. Uh, They should definitely follow me personally on Twitter, at DaveWritesJunk. And they should check out uh, all the great countdowns and all the other content that uh, Wrestling Estate has been kind of recirculating over the last week or so. In the last year, we have created this just incredible wealth of roundtables with members of the Wrestling Estate staff talking about just every conceivable topic from like legendary tag team wrestling to who's the cutest couple in wrestling history. I mean, we've literally just covered an incredible swath of, of, of shit. 
So uh, make sure you mosey on over to The Wrestling Estate. Check out some of those uh, wrestling roundtables and follow them on Twitter as well, at The Wrestling Estate. Easy to remember. Oh, I neglected to throw this out last week. I meant to. That that is to say that our our recent guest, Mark Masick's book, Kaboom 2, is of course still available on Amazon. I have read it myself. I have reviewed it on its Amazon page. Uh, so if you want to know what to think about Kaboom 2 before you read it, you can just read my review, and um, then you'll go into the thing clear-headed, knowing exactly how to feel about it. So it, it's really a perfect deal. So make sure you check out uh, Mark Masick's Kaboom 2. You liked it. It was good. Yeah, definitely. I liked it. Uh, the, the first half of it really picks up where the second book wrapped up and is like really, really outrageously funny on every page. And then the second half of the book, there's like actual like really good tension. It's like... By the end of the book, you actually really care how things wrap up, which is like a hell of a a hell of an accomplishment considering it's a comedy book. I mean, like think of like some of the great comedy movies of all time, like Monty Python's Holy Grail is a great example. A lot of the great comedy movies have no ending because comedies are so hard. But he wrote a comedy sequel where you care about what happens in Act Three. So I would say that is a literary achievement. So yeah, and you can check me out at the next T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out as Dave said at H W E T W Pod. You can also check us out in terms of the podcast at How Wrestling Explains That Podbean.com. You can download, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Store. Uh, And like Dave said, look to the YouTube channel because we are going to start putting up uh, little, you know, clips. Uh, We're going to pull some stuff from previous episodes that people get an idea of us because Dave did a great job and we have... uh, like 20 times more followers than we did before uh this weekend so thanks to dave uh and check out the new logo so yeah that's it uh did you have anything else you wanted to add dave before we go i'll, I'll take that as a as a no um is this your king when you said you would take me to california for the first time I thought you meant Coachella or Disneyland. Why here? This is where our father killed our uncle. They're tearing it down. Good. They are not tearing it down. I bought this building. And that building. That one over there. This will be the first Wakanda International Outreach Center. Nakia will oversee the social outreach. You will spearhead the science and information exchange. You're kidding. Yeah?
唱